Have you ever bought a high-end bicycle? Invariably, if you're buying one, you're going to buy it from, if not private, you're going to buy it from a bike shop because they're the only places that sell expensive bicycles. But when you go in and you buy it and you make your purchase, one of the first things they're going to do with you is set that bicycle up for you, for you in particular. It already came off the rack. They've already got it assembled there, all the levers on, the seats on, the whole bit. It's imperative that they set it up for you. They'll set the seat height. They'll set the handlebars up. They'll put your levers in the correct position. Now ask yourself this. When you bought your last motorcycle, if you bought it at a dealership, did they do the same setup for you with your motorcycle? Motorcycle, bicycle. These things have almost identical controls. So if they didn't, why didn't they? On the show today, we have Grant Johnson from Horizons Unlimited, who is going to do a walkthrough of how to set up your motorcycle so that it will fit you like a glove. And if you haven't done this already, this is going to be a beautiful episode for you. We're also going to sit down with Sam Manicon, world traveler, motorcyclist, adventurer, writer. He's got four books out, four amazing books. I've read them all. And he, two of those books are in audio. We're going to talk about Sam's bike choice, also, what he modified on his bike, what worked and what didn't work, which I think is, is crucial. It's the key learning points for us, really, to find these people who have done it, they live with it, and they said, you know what, this mod just was not necessary. Or this other one was absolutely fantastic. And Sam has a load of information for us on that, too. You know where you are. You're listening to Adventure Rider Radio. I'm Jim Martin. Stay with us. to Adventure Rider Radio. You know, I don't know about you, but I like to listen to this sort of thing in the shop. So why don't you pack it all up, take your, your player outside, plug in your speakers outside, head out there to your motorcycle, get your tools out, and sit down and listen to this in the shop. That way you can stop it, you can rewind it, you know, adjust things as you go. Grant Johnson coming up next. Hi, Grant. Welcome back to Adventure Rider Radio. Hi. Good to be back again. Today, Grant Johnson from Horizons Unlimited is back with us, and we're going to talk about setting up your bike, getting the ergonomics set up for your motorcycle. Now, you may not have ever heard of this before, or you may have thought about it before. Possibly, and quite possibly, you've adjusted some levers or a couple of things trying to make things work. But now you're going to get the skinny on it. You're going to find out how to do it and how to do it right. Let's start with, why is a bike not set up for you to begin with? Why is my bike that I bought off the floor not perfectly set up for me already out of the factory? I mean, the, the manufacturer built it and sent it out that way, and I'm ready to jump on it. The biggest problem is that they're trying to fit everybody. And when, when, when I do this uh, thing for uh, one of our events, it's really easy because I can show point to somebody and say, you're five foot two, and look at somebody else, and you're six foot four, and you're going to ride the same bike. There's no way on earth that they can make it fit both of you easily right out of the factory. Everything has to be different. Uh, some people are short in the body. Some are long in the body. Susan and I are a really good example. I'm six feet tall, and Susan is five foot four, and we have the same leg inseam. In other words, I'm very long in the body, and she's very short in the body. And trying to get a bike to fit both of us is just not going to happen. 
But fortunately, the manufacturers are smart enough to give us, give us some adjustments so we can make things better. And we have to do that. The real problem is that when you buy a bike from your dealer, the first thing they do is take your money and then they deliver you the bike and you get on and you ride away. But how many people have actually had the dealer say, okay, sit on the bike and let's get it adjusted for you. I'd be willing to bet that there's maybe one, maybe two people out there that have actually had that experience. It's very, very rare. So you have to do it yourself. How is it different from a car? Because it, it seems to me you just jump in a car and you drive it. Well, you don't. Again, Susan and I are a really good example. <laughs> we drive a Mazda 3 and it has an adjustable height seat. She cranks the seat to the very, very top and I crank it to the very, very bottom and change the angle and move a few things around, change the, the tilt of the steering wheel. There's a lot of things that you do adjust in a car, but the I think you adapt more in a car to the where things are because they haven't made it as adjustable as it could be. I would love to have my steering wheel about an inch farther away. Susan would love to have it an inch closer. Well, it doesn't have that adjustment, so you deal with it. But on a motorcycle, you can make all these changes and you can make it fit you much better. And I think one of the important things to think about is that in a car, you're, you're passive, you're just kind of sitting there like a lump and pointing it in approximately the right direction and tuning your brain out. On a motorcycle, you're riding it. You are in tune with it. You are using it. Um, it's much more of a, a connection that you have with that bike. So you want it to work better, easier, and it can be more tiring. So you want it to make it less effort and less tiring as well. And we can do all of that with some very minor adjustments. So what are the basic areas of adjustment then? There's several. One of the biggest ones is handlebars, getting the bars right, just getting them positioned right, um, adjusting the seat. Maybe you need to modify the seat a little bit. You can get a lot more comfort by with a different seat or modifying your current seat. Um, the angle of the handlebars is important. Uh, getting the levers in the right position. And amazingly, the gear shift lever and brake pedal are 90% of the time are not where they need to be. So it's too much effort to, do the, to, to move the controls to make things happen on the bike. Okay, Grant, I know you do this, uh, this demonstration all the time at your events. So can you run through this for us sure. and tell us how we would go through and, and make these adjustments? One of the first things to think about, and I think everybody will uh, connect with this, is neck pain. Why is your neck, or just behind uh, the, the lower part of your back, sorry, the upper part of your back, just below your neck, why does that hurt? Usually it's because your handlebars aren't in the right position. The angle isn't right, they're shaped wrong, or you're just sitting a little bit wrong. Um, the first thing to get rid of that pain is to make sure that the handlebars are at the right height and the right angle. So I know you're listening to this on the radio, but I want everybody to close their eyes and put your hands out in front of you. Okay, now open your eyes and look at where your hands are, and I'd be willing to bet that 99% of you have your hands straight out in front, palms down, and your hands are relatively flat. If you put them down on the table, they wouldn't move much. Yeah. That's your natural angle, your natural position. What did you do, Jim? Yeah, same thing. I put my hands out. I had a curve. I was imagining holding the, the grips, but I mean, yeah, I had the same thing. And when I look at the angle, it's straight off from my arm. My, my hands are straight ahead. 
Yeah, absolutely. Everybody does it. It's really hilarious when I have a big crowd. I got 50 or 60 people in the seminar and you look around and everybody except one person has their hands exactly like that, straight out and flat. Mm -hmm. And there's always somebody who does it weird, but that's okay. <laughs> there's always somebody weird. <laughs> so the, the thing to understand here is that that is where your arms and shoulders are comfortable. That's where you're naturally feeling like this is what works for me. And if you put your hands on your bars now, you'll find that your bars probably aren't quite right there. So what we want to do first off for your average motorcycle, in particular for your adventure bike, is get the handle grips level. You'll find when you look at them that they're often tilted down a little bit or maybe tilted up a little bit, but you want them to be absolutely level, flat to the ground. Once you get the handlebars in that position, that makes a big difference. That'll take out that pain in your shoulder and neck, or should. So that's that's either swiveling the bars forward or back to, to get that set yeah, up? Yeah, just, just loosen, loosen the handlebar clamps and rotate the bars backwards and forwards until the handle grips are level. And that takes care of a lot of it. Um, just doing that alone, it's amazing the, the difference that can make in shoulder pain, neck pain, and getting comfortable. And when you stand up, the grips aren't, doing, aren't changing their angle a lot because the grips are level. It doesn't matter whether you're standing up or sit down. It still feels the same. And that's important. So once you've got that set, and that, that's not a big deal, um, you can buy handlebar risers as well. If you find that the bars are too low for you, uh, if, you got, if you're six foot four, then you're going to need handlebar risers. There's a number of them out there. They're readily available for just about any bike. Uh, there's one that is made that I really like. You clamp them on, and then they pivot in the handlebars, and their handlebars lock into them. And that gives you fore and aft adjustment on the handlebars as well. If you're a big guy, you want, might want to move those bars a little bit forward. If you're a small girl, you might want to pull them back a little bit. But these uh, handlebar risers give you the ability to do that. So that's very useful. So once you've got that sorted out, the next thing we want to think about is what about the levers? Where do the levers go? Now remember the where you put your hands when you put your hands out in front of you? Well, when you put your hands on the bars, you want the levers to just touch your fingertips. So in straight other words, off. They're level too. Straight out. Mm -hmm. You don't want them to be up, and you don't want them to be down. Now, one of the things to think about is when you put your hand out in front of you and squeeze, make a fist, now bend your wrist, your, your, your fist towards you, and try flexing in and out. And you'll find that that small muscle just below the, uh, the meat of your, the, the butt of your hand, there's a small muscle there doing all the work. And if you bend it back the other way, you find there's a very small muscle on the top of your wrist that's doing all the work. If your hand is straight, think about now, feel what, when your hand is straight, what muscle's doing the work? You can actually see down by your elbow, there's a big muscle there that's doing the work now. Yeah, it feels like it's, it's in my arm now instead of in my hands. It's in your arm. Your arm's doing the work instead of your wrist. Guess which one's easier? Guess which one's going to tire out the fastest? Okay, you don't want those little muscles working hard. You want that big muscle working lazily. So this means that you're going to be a lot less tired. Your wrists and hands are going to be less tired. Your overall physical fitness is going to be better because you are overall less tired, which means you can ride longer and safer because you're more in control. Now, what about some of these bikes? So when you loosen them off, they're actually pinned in place. 
Uh, I'm glad you asked that question. I love those pins. Um, the history on those is really interesting. Way back in the 60s, Honda in California was sued by somebody because their handlebar lever or the brake lever came loose and flopped down and they went to reach the brake and it wasn't there. Honda was sued and lost. Guess what? Everything's now pinned in order to be safe. Oh, yes. And you know, it's interesting because quite often I hear people, and, and I heard a person at a dealership tell me this, and one particular dealership told me that the reason they pin it was because they knew where to set it right. <laughs> that was yes. interesting. Yeah, yeah. He doesn't have a clue what he's talking about. I'm sorry. <laughs> well, what it does give them is at the factory, they throw the lever at the handlebars, and a, a hydraulic machine spins some screws in, and bang, it's done. And when it arrives at the dealership, they put the handlebars on the bike, because usually the bars are off, although some of them aren't. Um, and they, there's a little tiny mark usually that positions the handlebar in this place. Problem is that mark, depending on what angle you're looking at, can make a difference of two inches on the height of the handlebar. And it's all approximate, and it gets it onto the showroom floor quick and cheap. Problem is the guy that's actually doing the assembly at the dealership is probably the 16-year-old kid who may or may not have a license yet, and he's putting your bike together. Now, in theory, the mechanic does a full service on it, checks everything over, and makes sure it's right, but I can guarantee you he does not adjust anything because if he's got any brains, he knows or he doesn't know what height you are and how long your arms are and what your reach is. So how can he adjust it? So he just leaves it wherever it was. Now, in theory, when the salesman sells it, show, or, sorry, when the salesman delivers the bike to you, he should have a mechanic there with some wrenches and j adjust it and get it all set up for you. But it never happens. No, it's very, very happen. rare. No. no, they just want to get you the bike out on the bike. It's good enough, but it's a long, long ways from perfect. Or you find yourself adapting yourself to your bike and putting up with a little discomfort. I mean, you mentioned back pain. Uh, we've all had that at different times. I've been getting some lately in my right upper arm, and I have no idea where mm -hmm. it's coming from. And it's got to be something to do with the way I'm sitting. Something's changed. You know, I've done a lot of miles on this bike already. Yeah, there's a couple of things that it can be. And I'll tell you one thing to look at. Make sure that the front end isn't tweaked. If the bike is being crashed at all, even in a, a low-speed crash, the handlebars could be bent slightly. And you don't notice it. We had uh, a couple of guys came to our North Carolina event one year, and one of them kept saying throughout the ergonomics course that his handlebars are bent. And his buddy would say, no, they're not. They're not bent. They're fine. They're fine. These handlebars are bent. Look at that. And I looked at it, and, yep, they're bent. And the guy that owned the bike w was absolutely adamant that they weren't bent. He had adapted to the bend. He'd gotten used to it, and it was normal, and he was sitting just a little bit funny, and he did complain about a pain in his upper shoulder. So all you got to do is straighten, put on straightened handlebars and you'll be fine. That's interesting you mentioned that because my handlebars are bent because I went to go over Bingo. a log once and, and it went down hard. It's a very slight bend. And at first it felt terrible. Yep. But after oh, even a day, I was pretty used to it at that time. That was a long time ago now. I've been riding yep. with it for a long time. I'll bet you that's your problem. I'd love to see what happens when you change those bars and see if that pain goes away. So anyway, you've got to get that stuff straight. Make sure your front end is straight. Get those handle grips level. Get the levers level and adjust it up and down. Um, it is possible, and I'm not advocating you do this, but it is possible to either enlarge the holes in the bar or pull the pins out. Of course, you shouldn't do that for technical and legal reasons, but it's possible to do that if that's what's necessary to get it right. 
The uh, other part that goes with that is the positioning of the switches. Very often, again, they're just stuck on and they kind of sit there and it looks about right and that's good enough. But you may find that the turn signal switch or the horn button or something is a little bit farther away than you'd like. Hey, there's a couple of screws. Loosen them up. Rotate. Done. It's not a big deal. Make it fit you. That's what's important. Having levers unpinned is also an advantage for when the bike goes down, right? Yes. Uh, for off-road, it's very normal to have the levers not quite tight. In fact, Motion Pro sells a um, bit of tape sort of stuff. It's a wrap to put on the handlebar. And then you can put the handlebar um, levers on, clamp them down tight. And yet, when you crash, the handlebars will rotate on this tape. And if you don't do your handlebar uh, clamps up quite tight, they will also still rotate when you crash so that you don't snap the levers off. That's a very common off-road trick. Okay, so we've, uh, we've got the levers. Where do we go next? From there, we have a choice of going to the seat, which very often, I'll just talk about a seat briefly. Um, a lot of people say, well, I really need a new seat because the stock seat's terrible. And yeah, usually they are. Um, you can spend a lot of money to buy a seat or you can modify it yourself. It's actually not hard. You can get one of those electric knives, which you can still buy, they're relatively easy, they're, they're inexpensive. And the upholstery on the seat is held on with staples. Literally, it's stapled to the plastic. Pull out all the staples, lift the upholstery off, and take that electric carving knife and do a little adjustment. Wherever it doesn't seem quite right, just carve it off. You can also buy at an upholstery shop some foam and good old contact cement and stick on new foam. You can make it a little bit wider, add a little bit of foam wherever it seems to be appropriate, and make a lot of adjustments. And the really neat way to do this is to take some foam and some contact cement and your handy-dandy electric carving knife and go for a ride. When your butt starts to hurt, think about it. Where is it hurting? Why is it hurting? Let's try this. And you make some adjustments, cut it up a little bit, add a little bit, whatever it takes, and then ride some more. And eventually, that seat's going to be really comfortable. Mm -hmm. And if you're lucky, the original upholstery will still fit. You can still persuade it to go on. If it doesn't, you can take it to an automotive upholstery place and they can put a new seat cover on it for you for reasonably inexpensive. And then you have the perfect fit. You got the perfect fit. I mean, I've had my seat custom fitted to me by a seat fitter. And guess what you do? You go in there, they take a look at you, how high tall you are, and then they do their basic seat and say, okay, go for a ride. You come back half an hour later and you say, well, it's not quite right there. And you always feel pressured to, be, to get it done quickly. So you never ride for quite as far or as long as you can. And usually they're, they're in a city, so you've got to get out of the city and onto the highway. And yeah. it's, all, it's difficult. So you, you end up faffing about it, and it's never quite right. Whereas if you ride yourself, no pressure, on the roads that you normally ride, you've got the time to really work at it. And even if it takes you a couple of days of riding, hey, you want to go for a ride anyway, right? Go for rides, stop every hour, take 10 minutes and tweak the seat, and then ride for another hour. See how it feels. Make it right. Make it fit you. If someone finds a stock seat fine, then you just leave it then, right? Yeah, sure. If, it's, if you're happy with it, great. But <laughs> I'd say probably 90% of people aren't happy with a stock seat, but that's okay. Those who are, hey, go for it. If it works for you, that's great. So we've got a nice comfy seat. We've got our levers and our bars in the correct position, and now we're looking at our feet. Yeah, the feet is definitely next. Um, if you think about your gear shift lever to start with, the thing you want to be able to do is to shift up and down easily. 
you don't want to have to bend your ankle hard in either direction in order to change gears. And what I find very often is that people either have the gear shift lever too low, in other words, they're riding along and their foot's on the lever, or the gear shift lever is way too high. Maybe they wear motocross boots occasionally and the gear lever is too high for normal use and they've got to lift their foot right off the foot peg in order to change gears. And that's just wrong. What you want to do is if you think about your boot and think about the toe area, looking at it from the side, the gear shift lever should stick right through your big toe, right dead center, so that when you're riding normally and comfortable, your foot is just centered on the gear lever so that from that position it's and uh, you move it down an inch and you're underneath the gear lever lift it up an inch and you're on top of the gear lever so the same amount of movement to change gears up or down just keep it centered and that way you have the minimum amount of effort to change gears in other words we want to make it easy least effort and not have to lift your foot off the, the uh, foot peg in order to change gears it's all about subtle. Adjusting the gear lever is actually fairly easy. All bikes have adjustable gear levers. Some are more adjustable than others. If you find that you can't get it quite right, you'll often find that there's an aftermarket gear lever. Uh, Touratech makes a gear lever for the 1200 GS that's adjustable for length, which I found to be absolutely wonderful. I loved it. I've got a fairly small foot for a guy. I'm only a size 9, and gear levers are often too long for my foot. So I finally was able to adjust it close enough that I could get the gear lever right over the ball of my foot where I wanted it so that I could change gears easily without having to lift my foot forward in order to change gears. So that was a really, really handy thing. So adjustability is important. And what's your thoughts on the folding shift lever as opposed to the solid one? I think folding is a good idea. Um, it may not solve all the crashes, but it will certainly solve most of them. Yeah, get a folding shift lever if you're going to ride off-road. On the, on the road, I wouldn't worry about it at all. But off-road, yep, folding gear lever is a good idea. And if you're riding seriously off-road, you can attach a cable from the outside edge of it up forward so that it keeps the brush out. It depends a lot on where you ride. Here in British Columbia, we've got a tremendous amount of undergrowth. Um, and this is a temperate rainforest, so the brush is a big problem. So that's something that's done fairly often out here. So uh, what about the brake lever then? Uh, brake lever is a lovely one. How to put it politely. Harleys have the world's worst brake lever. You're sitting your foot on this big footboard and you've got to lift your foot up and step on the brake. Now for a lot of people that's exactly the same as a car. That's just dandy. They lift their foot up and step on the brake. But by that time you've already moved 50 feet down the road. That's a long time without getting your foot on the brake. So what I think is entirely possible and every bike I've ever ridden and seen is adjustable except for Harley and the cruiser style that have that kind of footboard and pedal up sticking up but all the adventure bikes and all the normal motorcycles it's very easy to get the brake pedal exactly right which is to say when you're riding down the road normal comfortable just riding your foot should be just touching the brake pedal in other words it's on top of the brake pedal and all you got to do to put the brake on is push. That's it. So that's the important thing. If your foot is out to the side because the pedal's too high and you can't put your foot on top of it, that's bad. It takes you a long time to lift your foot up and put it on the brake pedal. You should never have to lift either of your feet to change gears or put the brakes on. Your feet belong on the foot pegs all the time.
It shouldn't be that hard. Um, the problem on the brake pedal is that it's a little harder to adjust than the gear lever. There's some bikes that are quite tricky. Uh, the older 650 GS BMW was a really classic example. Uh, I remember the first time I saw one of those and somebody said, well, how do I adjust my brake? And I looked at it and I looked at it and I thought about it and I looked some more and I thought, there's, this is really weird. There's no adjustment. And then I realized, oh, yes, there is. There's a piece of metal that sticks up it's welded to the frame, and that's the stop for the brake pedal. And what you do is you take a hammer and you hit it, and you bend it. And that's how you adjust the height of the brake pedal. But if you didn't have that little bit of courage to say, it's okay to bend my BMW, um, you would ride around with a brake pedal that's just plain wrong. Generally, there, there is some adjustment, and you can make it just right. Um, most of the time, it's not a big problem. But just be prepared that there might be something a little tricky here. And uh, the part that goes with that is once you've got the brake pedal adjusted to the correct height, you want to make sure that the brake light switch is, is set up in such a way that you move your brake pedal oh, an eighth of an inch, maybe, and the brake light comes on. So you want to be able to just touch the brake and know that your brake light's on so that the guy behind you is getting the most warning. And if he's too close, you can blink it a few times and frighten him off a little bit. And then the brakes come on. So you get as much brake light as you can. But it's important that it's adjusted just exactly right. Just take a few minutes and get it set just so. It's all about reaction time, isn't it? I mean, we just can't afford sure. to waste any reaction time on a motorcycle. And in a car, you have that you know, luxury where you can lift your foot off of one and put it on the other. But for the motorcycle, we need to be really be on the ball. I think so, yeah. Um, there's a lot of big cars out there, and if you hit one, it's going to hurt. Whereas if you, in a car, if you hit something, yeah, you're probably no big deal. Um, but when we hit something, it's bad. And also, it's not just the, the safety angle. I think that the safety angle is very important. It's very critical. And you should make it as safe as you possibly can. But also, it's much more enjoyable when you hit a nice twisty mountain road and you're going out and having some fun. It's nice to be able to ride in such a way that it feels like a dance. Think about a waltz where you're, you're dancing with a good partner and it's, everything flows, it's smooth, it's easy, there's no effort, there's nothing difficult. It's just a smooth, pleasant flow. Your ride should be like that as opposed to hardcore rock and roll. There's a big difference in the way the bike feels when it's set up right. It's all about subtle, easy, flow, smooth, nothing's difficult. And it's beautiful. It's a wonderful thing when the bike is set up right. What do you think about lowering the foot pegs as part of adjustments? If necessary. In other words, you're really tall, then yeah, okay. But I would rather you put a tall seat on. Make a seat taller is a better idea. As soon as you lower the foot pegs, the foot pegs are there where they are for a reason. One of them is the brake and gear shift lever are in um, approximately the right position in relation to the foot pegs, and also ground clearance. When you're leaned over, if you lower your foot pegs, your pegs are going to drag a lot sooner. So if you lower your foot pegs, guess what? You've got to start really getting serious about adjustment on your gear lever and your brake pedal. And you, then you, people start cutting and welding and doing all kinds of hardcore stuff in order to make things fit as soon as you lower the foot pegs. Whereas if you added an inch of foam to the seat, that's it. You're done. It's a lot easier. So I wouldn't lower foot pegs unless I really had to. Have we got our bike ready to ride now? 
In most respects, yeah, I think so. Um, one of the things that I always come back to is mirrors. Make sure they're set up right. Um, the mirrors should be straight out to the side, not like the, the supporting bar shouldn't be tilted back towards you and it shouldn't be away from you. You want them straight out because that way they are as wide as possible, which gives you the best view behind you possible. Also, if they're tilted back a little bit, if you should have a, an unpleasant accident, we hope you won't, if you have an accident and you hang on to the levers, which people often do, you'll hear stories about people breaking both wrists. That's because they held on, their wrists hit the mirror stack, stock and snap. So if they're straight out, you've got less risk of doing that before your hands let go. So it's a matter about getting, getting everything set up to fit and work for you. So we went through our getting our handlebars flat, adjusting our levers with that, figuring out our seat. Is our stock seat good enough or do we want to modify it? Which the way you've explained it now makes it sound extremely easy to, to modify a seat. It's not a big deal. I don't think it's as scary as what most people would picture it as. And then setting up our gear shift and our uh, brake levers. And of course, adjusting our, our brake light to make sure that we've got good action with that. Yeah. And um, we should be good for a smooth ride. Yeah, actually, there's one more little detail, and it's always a, a kind of a, huh? Get a can of oil and lubricate all those points. The levers need to be lubricated. The gear shift pivot maybe needs to be lubricated. Um, the brake pedal pivot definitely needs to be lubricated. All of those things need a little bit of oil every once in a while to make them smooth. I always find it funny when somebody puts a passenger peg down for their passenger and it goes, squeak. <laughs> oh, Gee, you know, a drop of oil would make you much more cool for your new passenger. <laughs> and it goes thunk instead of squeak. Which one sounds classier? I know which one I prefer. So just a drop of oil to make everything work smoothly. It's all about making it easy. And a little bit of oil goes a long way. I carry uh, on when I'm traveling a small can of WD-40 and a small can of Triflow. Um, the Triflow I was able to get in a non-aerosol and it was great. One little bottle, about three inches tall, lasted me for an entire trip around the world. It just takes a drop or two, and that's it. That's all that's you need. That's in a pump bottle? Um, no, it's just a little plastic squeeze bottle. Yeah. I don't know if you can get it still or not. I haven't seen it recently, but then I haven't looked because I've still got it. It's still, it's still good. I've still got some in it. Um, but if you can get us a little squeeze bottle for a drip drip of a couple of drops of oil here, there, and everywhere, it makes a huge difference. And uh, use WD-40 if things are getting kind of grunchy and dry. Yeah, it does a great job of making things move and getting it started, but the TriFlow is the lube, not the WD-40. Anything else we should add to this, Grant? That's about it. I'd love to hear if anybody has any questions, because usually there's some. Um, if anybody wants to ask any questions, send them in, and we'll see if we can answer them next time around. So fire your questions into us, and uh, we'll get Grant to answer them for you. Hey, Grant, before you go, what does Horizons Unlimited have going on right now? What's the big things? Just our Ontario Travelers meeting coming up and the Can West meeting. The Can West is uh, the last weekend in August and September is the Ontario meeting. Both of them are well worth coming to for anybody who's interested in adventure travel. If you want to go somewhere, get inspired, learn a few things about the things you need to know to get out there and do some serious traveling, that's a great place to come. And I will actually be doing this ergonomics course in person and we can tweak your bike for you. Oh boy, that's a great idea, but that's the ultimate right there. Go and uh, get your bike set up while you're at the Horizons Unlimited event. Perfect. 
Well, thanks very much, Grant. That was great. That certainly will help out a lot of people, I'm sure, setting up their bikes. All right. You're welcome. Talk to you later. Bye-bye. Well, perhaps for next show, we can talk about chain adjustment to follow this one up. Sounds good. I've been speaking with Grant Johnson of Horizons Unlimited. Oh, boy, what a wealth of knowledge. And he he does a great demonstration. If you get a chance, you've got to go to one of the Horizons Unlimited meetings because not only is there travelers there giving all kinds of different demonstrations and talks about travel and about motorcycle and overlanding, but um, Grant has this great demonstration he does on setting up your bike. And, and, and like you can hear it when he's talking about it, you, a, a bike that's set up for you, it's, it's, it's like a dance. It feels just so much better. And I know because I've run through the setup on my bike and it's, it's night and day. It really makes all the difference. You wouldn't think it would, but boy, when everything's in place, it just feels right. And it not only feels right, it boosts your confidence level because you can count on it. You know where your foot is. You know where your hand is. You know where those levers are. I mean, it's absolutely fantastic. But if you can't, or even otherwise, you might want to go to um, the Horizons Unlimited website and look at their Achievable Dream DVD series. What a fantastic set of DVDs. I mean, you're going to see nothing but world travelers here, all experienced people. Part two is Gear Up. I just buy them all. Um, they're, they're well worth it. But part two is Gear Up. Gear Up has Grant doing this actual setup. So you see him running through the setup, but also has tons of other stuff on there. It's a, it's a two-disc piece and has a bunch of other people on there with uh, all types of things. I mean, they've, they cover which bike, uh, making it fit uh, with Grant. Then they do a, a little inside tour tech thing. They talk about uh, what to wear, what to take, GPSs and maps, first aid kits, camping, um, being overweight, not uh, you, your packing, and how to pack, and Grant's packing tips, and all kinds of stuff. So it's very well worthwhile. Um, I forget how much money it is, but you can check it out on their website, and we'll put a link to it in our show notes. It's called Achievable Dream, the Motorcycle Adventure Travel Guide, and this one is part two, Gear Up. Um, that's, uh, of course, through Horizons Unlimited. <laughs> Hi, I'm Sam Manicum. I'm a traveller, motorcyclist and author, and you're listening to Adventure Rider Radio. For those who follow the show, you'll remember the last episode with Lisa and Simon Thomas, world adventurers, uh, travellers who have been roaming the earth on a motorcycle for 11 years. And you remember Simon's comment at the end there about the perfect motorcycle, and he said, take whatever bike you wanted. Well, the way Sam told me, and I could have taken this wrong because, of course, I'm from Canada. I'm not from the UK. But he said he went down to the pub and someone told him what bike to buy. And that he did. And he rode it around the world. Sam rode for eight years around the world, going through 55 countries. When it was all over, he found he had so many stories to tell that he ended up writing a book and then another book and then another book. And he's since produced four amazing books. The first book is called Into Africa. The second book is Under Asian Skies. The third book is Distant Suns. And the fourth and final is Tortillas to Totems. Um, all four great books. Like I said, I've, I've read them myself. But what's really exciting right now is the first two have been turned into audiobooks. So those of you who don't read or aren't into reading or don't have the time, whatever the case is, you've got audiobooks to listen to. And the cool thing is you're going to hear Sam's voice. How often do you get that with an audiobook? It's not very often that you get the author to read the book. I think mainly because it just doesn't work out. But um, Sam's got a voice for it. It obviously worked. And he's got two of them turned into audiobooks now. Sam, welcome to Adventure Rider Radio. Hello, Jim. How are you? 
I'm well, Sam. Thanks very much. Um, appreciate you coming on to Adventure Rider Radio. And I understand you're quite a morning person. This is um, really the wind down for your day, isn't it? And really just the wind up for me. Yeah, pretty much. Um, I'm, I'm a morning person. I love that time of day. Um, I suppose that partly comes from traveling. So where are you now, Sam? Uh, I'm sitting at uh, my desk in the city of Exeter in the UK. It's um, it's a small city. It's like, like an overgrown town, really, which is, I guess, one of the reasons why I like it. I've got a small apartment at the, the top of um, a four-story building, and uh, I can look out of my windows and I can see right across um, at Dartmoor, which is um, one of the most beautiful parts of the southern UK. So I'm really privileged. It's a great spot. Where's your motorcycle? Oh, she's parked down the street outside. Unfortunately, I've got no off-road parking. So she doesn't live indoors, but hey, she spent most of her life living outside anyway. So I think she'd probably sulk if I tried to lock her away. <laughs> Is it the same bike that you took on your trips? Yeah, absolutely. Um, it's uh, a BMW R80GS. And um, I ended up with that bike because uh, I was in the pub and I was telling my friends that I was going to go off and ride a bike the length of Africa. Oh, they were just creased up laughing because, well, they knew I couldn't ride a motorcycle. So it was, it was aye, aye, what's he up to this time? Uh, but uh, there were a couple of guys sitting on the table next door to us and um, my friends and I, we were chatting away and they were laughing and we had bike magazines all over the table. And of course, each one said, this bike is the best thing since sliced bread. And uh, But I guess we were being a little bit noisy because it wasn't difficult for the guys on the tables next door to us to listen in. And uh, we ended up with quite a few of the, of the people from the different tables actually joining in with us. And a couple <laughs> of the guys uh, said to me, uh, so what bike are you going to take, Sam? And I said, well, I don't know. I mean, just look at this lot. And he said, forget that lot. Take a BMW R80GS. They're bulletproof. His mate then leant round and said, yeah, they're blooming idiot proof and all. So I thought, well, I'd better have one of those then. And they were right, bulletproof and idiot proof. That's me, by the way. Sam, let me start by asking you, how do you define adventure? And is adversity required? <laughs> do you know, this is really strange because I've just finished working on an article um, asking that very question. What is adventure all about? Why, and what's adventure motorcycling? Uh, I've got some, some really set ideas on it. I think that an adventure, well, for starters, the word adventure is getting a bit hackneyed and so on, and the media and manufacturers tend to be lumping the word into a particular type of box. Whereas for me, I think adventure is something that's, that's really wide open. Adventure is something that gets you out of your home environment. It's something that stretches you. It's something that gives you the opportunity to learn about something new. Um, it gives you the opportunity to find out about yourself because you put yourself in, in difficult situations or situations that you've just never been anything in, in anything like it before. And that's when you're going to have an adventure. But, you know, I can do that by going and riding in uh, the back of beyond of Wales, for example, because I don't know Wales very well. I don't know its roads. I don't know a huge amount about the culture. So everything that I see when I'm riding there is going to be new and there will be challenges. And yeah, I, I, just, I just love it. Adventure. It's a great word. And yeah, it's real. The word adventure has the ring of promise to it, doesn't it? The, the ring of mm. exciting new things about to happen. And I yeah. hope the word adventure doesn't get um, dumbed down too much. You've traveled around the world on your motorcycle. You've authored four books from your adventures. 
two of which you made into audiobooks. You've written um, for magazines. You continue to write magazine articles. You've done numerous talks, many, many talks, I'm sure, and shows presenting travel, uh, presenting your books. Yet you didn't set out to be an author. So can you tell us how you ended up here? <laughs> uh, I, yeah, I kind of think of myself as an accidental author because you're right, it was never intended to happen. When, when I set off to ride the length of Africa, I just went for the adventure. I went for the fun. I went for the opportunity to learn new things. And I went for the opportunity to ride a bike. Um, but, I, 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 you know, I, I made it as far as Delhi and in India. And one of the adventures there was trying to get a visa to get into Iran. And it was a particularly difficult thing to do at the time. And in many situations, it still is now. But back then, uh, I had to go to the Iranian embassy in Delhi. And I'd go in on a Tuesday morning and, uh, oh, sorry, mister no like today come back on friday so on friday i'd go in and oh sorry mister no like today come back on tuesday and this was just going on week after week now because there's not an awful lot of days in between tuesday and friday and friday and tuesday i'd explored the area within a day's ride or so of delhi fairly intensively and i'd walked all over the city which is an amazing city and do you know i'm a great believer in that when things don't work out as ideally you'd like them to there's always a silver lining and exploring delhi was one of those silver linings i got to places and got to talk to people that um, I, I would never in a month of Sundays would I had not done had I not had this situation with the Iranian visa. But I was staying on a camping site, uh, funnily enough, right in the middle of the city. I just didn't expect to find something like this, but it had high walls all the way around it. And it was a bit of an oasis. And for a traveler, it was a good spot uh, to rest up from the day's challenges because India uh, for any visitor is a challenge. And um, it was a bit of a crossroads for other travellers. So you'd meet loads of, of people overlanding, people who were backpacking, riding with bicycles, uh, four by fouring, but quite a few people on motorcycles too. Anyway, in the evenings, you know, we used to sit around and swap stories and um, answer questions and ask questions. And uh, one of the evenings, one of the girls said to me, Sam, so many mad things happened to you. You should write some articles. And I thought, yeah, okay, I guess, why not? It's not something that I've ever done before, and I didn't do particularly well at English in school, but hey, I've got nothing better to do, and she's right. Lots of things are happening. Maybe this is a way that I can share the fun a little bit. So I wrote three articles, and I submitted them to every magazine that I could find the address for in the UK, and to my delight, Motorcycle Sport and Leisure magazine got back to me and said, yeah, we're like those, we'll take all through, um, keep sending them. So over the next years of the journey, every so often I'd send them an article. It, it was important to me, though, not to make the articles the reason for the trip. So sometimes there might be six months gap between uh, one article and the next. It just, you know, I'd write because I found myself in a place where I had to wait for something, a spare part or uh, a visa or whatever. And um, something particularly good fun had happened. So I'd sit down and write a story about it. And uh, when I got back to the UK, the magazine editor phoned me and he said, Sam, look, I keep getting letters and emails from readers saying they like your articles and they want to know when your book's coming out. Well, what book? It had never occurred to me even at that stage to write a book. But I thought, well, hey, look, you know, this, if there's interest, this is another adventure. It's uh, getting me having a going at, at something that I've never done before. So why not have a try? It could be something else stupid that Sam Manicum's done in his life. But if you don't try, then you'll never find out. 
And uh, I didn't even know how to use a computer at that time. So I had to learn to, uh, to use a computer first. And um, that was renovating semi-derelict houses. That was the first job that I did when I got back to the UK. So uh, starting work at seven o'clock in the morning and finishing around six of the evening, something to eat, and then a couple of hours trying to, to write a book. And it wasn't easy. But actually, I started to enjoy reliving the adventures. And in the end, I got oh, well over 200,000 words down. And I thought, that's not a book. That's just far too big. So then started going back through it and wheedling out all of the stuff that I thought was interesting to me, but may well not be to anybody else, until we got down to about 120,000 words. And I played around with that and edited it and sub-edited it and all the rest of it for, I don't know, for the next six months, until I got it to a stage where I thought, okay, this is worth getting other people to read. And I sent it off to Chris Scott. Do you know who wrote Adventure Motorcycle Handbook? Oh, yeah, yeah. Such a, an iconic um series of books that I'd love to know how many people that book has um, has got out on the road uh, in the right way. Um, anyway, Chris, Chris, um, I wrote to Chris and I said to him, look, you know, I know you're probably busy, but uh, would you mind having a little look and tell me whether this is complete rubbish or not? And if it is, then I'll just sort of tuck it away as a, as a nice memory and fun thing to do. And uh, a few weeks later, I had an email from Chris saying, dear Sam, it's pretty bloody awful. <laughs> of course, my heart dropped. Oh, no, because, you know, ever the optimist and so on. I, I just thought, oh, I can't be that bad. I've put so much energy into it. But the next day I had another email from Chris and he said, actually, it's not too bad at all. And there are one or two things that you need to do to it. And then it might well work. It's You've got an interesting tale to tell. And uh, so I made the changes that he suggested, uh, had it edited, and then... Um, Printed uh, went self-publishing because I spent the next two years trying to get a publishing house to take it on board. Most of the publishing houses didn't respond. One or two of them sent me automatic refusal letters. Two of the big boys, who I'd saved until last, sent me personal refusal letters saying, basically, Sam, we like your book, but you're not a media personality, and that means it's not going to sell. Well, of course, to begin with, I was absolutely gutted by that. But then I started to think, but hang on a minute, look use some common sense here they've said they like your book and they've actually sent you personalized refusal letters that's huge and they're right i'm not a media personality i'm just an ordinary bloke who's had a huge stroke of luck and had some fun but maybe that means that i should have a go at learning how to publish it myself so I spent the next year uh, going down the self-publishing route uh, you know i had in my mind the vanity press side of things um, but yeah i learned um, published 600 copies and you know to my amazement we sold nearly all of those within the first six weeks and I was getting emails and letters from people saying Sam we like it what happened next what happened next and so um, yeah gave up my day job and um, sat down and started to write Under Asian Skies thinking yet again well this could be another stupid thing that Sam's done in his life and I hope I'm not a one book wonder uh, but yeah it's one book's led to the other and yeah it's it's great it's been brilliant having the opportunity to share the fun of the road you know I know how lucky I am to have been free enough to do this. When I first started traveling and people used to say to me, oh, you're really lucky to go overlanding, I used to be an arrogant little sod and think to myself, yeah, well, you know, if you want to go, then you've got to make the same sacrifices that everybody else does. But I was talking to a guy called Charlie and he said, you know, I'd love to go traveling, but I can't. And I was being arrogant and thinking to myself that and he said, yeah, but you know, Sam, um, I'm the only son. My mother's heavily disabled. I look after her. If I go off and live my dreams, who's going to look after my mother? 
And then he said, travel books are the one thing that keeps me alive and awake and helping me to live my dreams. And I so valued meeting Charlie because he made me do a complete about turn. And he made me start thinking about the people who do read travel books. And I guess to, to try and sort of make it simple, I reckon there are three groups of people that read travel books. Those people who would love to go, but can't because one responsibility or another has got in the way. And I don't care what anybody says. People have genuine responsibilities. You know, it might be an elderly or disabled parent. It might be children. It might be a huge debt that they've suddenly found themselves lumbered with. One of those things. Um, there's another group of people who read travel books, I think, who love the whole concept of travel and learning about the different parts of the world. But quite honestly, they haven't got any real ambition to go and do it themselves. And hey, why not? I read all sorts of books about things that I'll probably never get involved with, but they're, they're always fascinating. And I think the third group of people are people who are trying to glean information and encouragement so that they can go off and do their own trips. And yeah, well, in the end, you know, I just love sharing the fun of the road. It's brilliant out there. The story you told about Charlie's in one of your books, and I remember when I read that, I really, it really struck me, and it stayed with me. And I've told many people about it when we've we've been talking about um, that sort of thing because I think a lot of times you do hear people say that, oh, well, it's just a matter of you know setting your mind to it and going, um, and and that's not the case. And your success with your book could easily be looked at as one of those um, one of those stories of, uh, well, look, you know, he just put his effort into it, and then it turned out fantastic. But it could also be looked at as one of those stories where you kept pushing and pushing and pushing until you found what worked. Is that what Sam Manicom is about? Well, pushing. Well, in life. <laughs> I mean, are you the type of person that has that bulldog tenacity? Because there's something different about you, Sam. Like, <laughs> whether, you, whether you believe it or not, there's something different about you. you. You've ridden your motorcycle around the world and done all these bizarre things that, like you said, many people in your three groups, and I'd be curious to know what the percentage is in each one, but many people would not even consider it. And other people would just, you know, think, well, it's a really cool idea, but not for me. You know, it's too mm -hmm. scary. So there's something about you. And are you that type of person that, that changes? chases things down that, that just doesn't let up until you find the thing that makes it work? Gosh, do you know, I've never asked myself that question. So you rightly put me on the spot with it. Um, I don't think I'm a pushy sort of guy, but when I get an idea, I work quite hard to see if I can make it work. And I'm fully, I'm, I'm really happy to accept that there are some things that I can't do. It's just, I don't have the talent or the skills for it. But that doesn't stop me actually having a look. And I surprise myself more often than not when I start exploring a possibility by the number of times I think, actually, do you know, that really could work. It's not that complicated. It's not that difficult. You will stuff things up along the way. You can't afford to be shy or embarrassed quickly. Or if you are, then just that, accept that as part of the experience. And dig out always looking for the good things that are happening. And those are often the impetus that keep you going or keep me going when things aren't working out exactly as they should be. And yeah, I suppose I probably live my life that way. The world, this is going to sound awfully cliched, uh, but it's real. The world is full of opportunities. And I think it's up to each of us to look at those opportunities and see what we can have a go at. When you were telling your friends about the trip, for instance, or your family, there must have been naysayers in there. Were there people that totally shot you down or was everyone right behind you? 
oh, all of my friends shot me down. They couldn't resist it. Mind you, quite a few beers helped with that. They're a raucous bunch. Um, <laughs> I think the person that I was most afraid of telling was my mother. Um, I'd been banned from motorcycling when I was a teenager, and probably quite rightly so, because I do stretch boundaries. I'm a very inquisitive sort of person. And when I'm getting in something, I do, you know, have a real go at it. And I guess that my parents knew that if I had a motorcycle, then I'd probably stretch the boundaries a little bit too quickly and probably would have ended up doing some real damage to myself or somebody else. And that would have been bad. Um, but when I, when, I, when I got in touch with my mother and I said to her, look, I've handed my notice at work and in three months time, I'm going to be at the edge of the Sahara Desert and I'm going to be riding a motorcycle the length of it. My mother's first comment to me was, okay, how much planning have you done and how much can I help? And she just blew me away with that. And I should have expected it because my parents were both uh, really traveled people. And yeah, well, I, I know where I, uh, which gene pool I come from. Wow, that, yeah, that's an incredible response. My mother was actually pretty amazing when, while I was traveling because even though she didn't like motorcycling and um, knew nothing about the world of motorcycling, she got stuck right in. So mum was my home administrator. So if there was something that I couldn't sort out from the road, then my mother would be uh, on the telephone to a uh, spare parts supplier or to um, the RAC who issue the Carnet de Passage in the UK and talking to, to those people about things that, you know, she'd just got no real handle on. But she was prepared to get stuck in and have a go and, and do what she could to help. And when I got back to the UK at the end of the trip, I met up with uh, Paul, who was running the Carnet section with the RAC. And one of the first things he said to me was, how's your mum, Joan? He, you know, he'd, he'd remembered from my, my mother from the dealings that he had with her. And this guy just went up hugely in my estimation. He was already high in my estimation anyway, because he was just brilliant with you know, how he did things. But uh, yeah, that was the sort of impact that she had on other people. She's a class act. So is writing or was writing um, just a way to hide out from a real job? Was sorry. Was writing or writing? <laughs> writing was writing. Writing. So when you came, you know, you come back from this amazing trip. Now you're going to be shoved back into society, and you're expected just to plug in, or do you find something else to do? And and, and I'm being facetious, obviously, but, but <laughs> was it was was it just a way to hide out from a from a real job and say, okay, no, I'm going to find something to do that I love, and that's what my life's going to be about. Yeah, I don't know whether it was a way of hiding out. When we got back from the trip, and I'm saying we because I met a, a German girl riding a bicycle through New Zealand. Uh, she was doing that for six months, and um, I wasn't looking for a, a girlfriend, and she wasn't looking for a boyfriend, certainly not one like me. Um, but we just got on really, really well together, and um, she came on the back of my bike in India and Nepal about a year later. And um, at the end of that, we just got on so well. I said, look, I'm going to South America. Would you like to come with me? And she said after a very little um, thought, yeah, I would, but on, on two conditions. And my first reaction to that was, right, okay, what's coming? And mm. her two conditions were brilliant. I want to go to Africa first. Yeah, okay, I don't mind going back. And her second was, I want to ride my own bike. Now, that's very cool. Excellent. Why not? Yeah. Um, so we spent four years uh, traveling together. And she was riding um, a 1971 classic BMW bike, which everybody said she was barking mad to ride. But it was the only bike out of the BMW range that she could afford where she could get her feet on the ground because she's not very tall. And uh, yeah, no, she did really well. She took that bike everywhere I took my GS. 
Um, yeah, much harder bike to, to ride than mine. When we came back, we, I, I promised myself, because I traveled before and, I, and I'd returned from trips, absolutely stoning bro stony broke. One time I came back owing at least a thousand pounds on my credit card and that was the hardest thing possible recovering from a big trip and all of the freedom and the excitement and being faced with debt and having to start at the bottom of the ladder and and just pay off all of that debt it was a real killer and so i promised myself that i'd never do that again and this time we we ended the trip with 2000 pounds left that we could have traveled on for a long time with that money but coming back at the end of an 8 year trip you need to have enough money to put down a deposit on somewhere to live. You perhaps need to buy a new set of clothes. Um, you've got to feed yourself. You want to have enough money uh, so that you can go and have a few beers with your mates so that you can travel to them to do it too. So that two grand was um, a really good way to come back at the end of the trip. We were very lucky in that we managed to get a job renovating semi-derelict houses and we did that for a year or so and that was a very good halfway house between the road and a nine till five. Going into a nine till five would have it would have driven me dotty. It would have felt like I was walking around with um, ankled bracelets and a ball and chain on. But uh, this, you know, because we had a certain amount of freedom with this with this job as to um, what time of day we worked and how long we worked each day. I mean, as it happened, we worked stupid hours, and we, but that was thoroughly because, because we thoroughly enjoyed the job. But it was the fact that we were in control, um, and that was great. But once that um, stint was over, then it was time to get back into a career again, and so I thought. And I'd been spending a fair bit of time during the last year of the trip wondering what on earth I was going to do with all of the knowledge that I'd got as a result of the trip. and. I, I didn't have a clue, but then, well, you know, fate sometimes plays magic games with you, doesn't it? And I was offered a job working as a paralegal for a law firm dealing with immigration. And so all of a sudden I was dealing with people who were coming from countries that I travelled in. And my first ever client, I knew the street that he lived in in Kampala in Uganda. Uh, I knew his favourite restaurant and I, I knew the bank that he did his banking in. He was just blown away by the fact that I knew where he was coming from and I knew the circumstances that um, his life was, was wrapped up in. And so all of a sudden, yeah, I, I managed to do that. I progressed with that for, within that firm to practice manager stage, which was really interesting and using a lot of previous skills. But, do you know, to be quite honest, I wasn't enjoying it very much. Um, back in that corporate world again, and when into Africa seemed to be working as a re uh, working out very nicely, and people were writing and say what happened next, then I thought stuff it, let's let's take some let's make a break and I'll write under Asian skies and we'll see. And if it is a complete failure, then well hey I've tried I've found out let's find another job, but it worked and so ever since then, I've I guess I've lived. A bit of a jigsaw puzzle life because being an author you don't earn a huge amount of money but you spend an awful lot of time smiling and sharing the fun and encouraging people I think within my books I try and paint the real pictures of what it's like out on the road there are magnificent things day after day and the joy of waking up in the morning and thinking what should I do today it's just fantastic. And being on a motorcycle, of course, gives you the freedom to do that. It's not like having bought a, a bus or a train ticket during the day. And then that night you meet somebody really interesting. And so the next morning you're thinking, gosh, what do I do? Do I find out more about this person and lose my bus or train ticket, which could have cost me a week's food money? Or um, do I just use those 
tickets and see what happens next in, in, in that direction. So being able to share the fun and, and the freedom that having, um, you know, riding a bike gives you has just been great. But, you know, stuff, stuff does go wrong. And I want people to be able to see that, you know, being out on the road, it's not all a bed of roses. You have challenges, but those challenges aren't something to be afraid of. Um, do you know, this also sounds terribly corny, perhaps, but every time something goes wrong, I think it's it's just a new opportunity waiting to be explored. And even the scariest things that happen, and I don't know whether you remember the first chapter from my book Into Africa, that still is the scariest experience of my life. It, I learned an awful lot. Yeah, that's right. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I had learned an awful lot about other people, about the place that I was in, other people's customs, customs and culture, a huge amount about myself. Uh, I didn't realize I could be violent until um, I was in, uh, thrown in, in jail. Um, so that was something else that was a real surprise to me. But the the silver lining of all of that was the people that I met. I met some absolutely amazing people as a direct result of that. And I never would have met them. I would have just ridden straight on past them had I not found myself in such a dire experience. And it, it, those sort of things, they really restore your faith in human nature. I, I like people a lot. I saw a thread on either Horizons Unlimited or, or ADV Rider, and it was on, uh, someone had posted there, was it better for them to, uh, they've got a little bit of money saved now, was it better for them to go now on vacation and come back with a debt, and at least have done it while they're young and capable and whatever their, their other reasons were, or to um, wait and save the money? Now, I, I think you've alluded to how you feel about that, but, but what does that make you think? It's it's a huge toss up and it has to be looked at individual by individual. A lot depends on on who the person is, their adaptability, their determination, um, and their attitude. One of the things that traveling long term teaches you is how to live with very very little. When we live in in modern day society, the adverts tell us that we have to have an awful lot of things, but actually we have to have very few things. Uh, food on the table, roof over the head, um, something for that you're starting to stash away for for old age, medical care, all of those sorts of things. And you know, everybody in this world has those same priorities. When you come back from a trip, and if you're skint, then it's very difficult, and you can fall into a significant depression because you've suddenly shackled yourself. But at the same time, you know, I've got a thought in my mind about my father. My father spent most of his life doing things for other people. And uh, he had, well, whatever what we all call now a bucket list. Uh, he had a lot of things on his bucket list, things that he wanted to do for himself when he retired. He survived a couple of years into retirement and then was dead. Mm-hmm. And that also has affected the way that I think about things. It's It's... It's very easy to put things off and put things off. But I guess the other thing that comes down to this is how many responsibilities that you've got. Can you really afford to go away and come back skint? Do you have the lack of responsibilities that allow you to do that? If you have, then yeah, just go for it. Just do it because you never know what tomorrow is going to bring. You know, one of my favorite sayings is, um, remember your yesterdays. Think about your tomorrows, but live for the day because you really don't know what tomorrow is going to bring. And that's such a good one. Do you still live like you did on the road? You mentioned that we don't need all these things, the trappings of Western society. Are you, do you take that, that travel way of life and bring it home with you now? 
do you know, it's that's also something that's very funny. Uh, Birgit and I were talking about this just this weekend. We were sitting in our apartment, which is really small. Uh, we don't need an awful lot of space. And we were looking around at the things that we have. We've got an old second-hand TV. Uh, we've got a tiny little stereo that's beat up and crackles a little bit. And we just went round um, everything that we'd got and thought, is there anything here that we really could do without? And most of the things that surrounded us, we could do without. There were, there are things in our apartment that have good memories attached to them. Sometimes they're things that we've bought when we've been on the road, and there's a story that's attached. Uh, I've got a couple of little um, teak statues which I, um, which I obtained uh, near Victoria Falls. I'd got talking to one of the guys who was um, making and selling these little carvings. And um, had a really nice conversation with this guy. He was telling me about the village that he lives in and um, the fact that he's got two wives and um, how he makes his living and that actually the carvings um, are an important part of his income, but not the most important part. And uh, I thought, you know, you are such a cool guy. And he was openly sharing his life with me. And he then saw me looking at his carvings and I was umming and ahhing, okay, I can't afford to buy anything big. I don't want to buy anything too big because I've got to carry it. I wonder which of these would actually be really nice to have. And he looked at my clothes, which were pretty patched by then, but always clean. And he said, you know, I think you don't have very much money. And I said, well, you know, I've got enough money to be doing what I'm doing and to be able to afford to travel for a little bit longer. And he said, do you know, I would like to trade something with you. I don't want your money. I want to trade. What have you got that, to trade? And I thought, gosh, what have I got that would be of the remotest bit use to this guy? And my bike was parked up behind me and um, I had a, a, an old front tyre on it. It probably had another 5,000 miles of, of life left on it. And he said, do you know that tyre that you have there, do you want it? And I said, well, not particularly. And he said, I tell you what, I'll change you these two carvings, the ones you like, for your tyre. I think I can get more money for that tyre than you can give me for these carvings. And that's what we did. And how can I possibly get rid of the two carvings that have a story like that attached to it? Yeah, that's a very good point. You mentioned memories and uh, when you're talking about these carvings. Do you consider recording your journal while you're on a trip or recording it in any other way sort of an integral part of the trip, of maintaining those memories for yourself? Oh, very much. Uh, when you're on a long trip, you're on intake overload all of the time. There's so much happening around you. Um, and it, it's even the things like the, the, the way things smell, uh, the way they sound, the, the, the feel of things. And the people that you've met and the quirky things that you see out of the corner of your eyes and so on. And if you don't write a journal, it's very easy because you're on intake overload every day to forget those small things. I really value um, writing my journal. But I don't have a strict time for writing it each day. I, I carry a small one, but I carry it in a pouch on my belt. Because, for example, when you're queuing up in a post office uh, to get your mail or that, that sort of thing, it's, it's one of the world's best people-watching opportunities. And to be able to stand there and record what you're seeing and what you're hearing and you're smelling and so on um, is just a perfect opportunity. And sitting down in a local cafe just watching life go by it's another perfect thing to do but you know at the end of the day even sitting and writing and thinking about all of the things that you've done that that day it it's it brings back an awful lot of things and sometimes you realize 
because you're sitting writing about it, that half of your mind has seen something while you've been concentrating on something else. And if you didn't sit down and write your journal, then you wouldn't remember those things. Uh, they would just be gone. It's like taking a photograph and looking at it later and thinking, geez, you know, I didn't realize all of that was going on in the background. A journal is really important. I find when I read uh, my journal that I do from time to time that it brings back the sights, the smells. I mean, I can remember the day down to a T. So mm -hmm. um, I, I think journals are, are just fantastic. And along that line, how do you feel about the new digital recording that everyone's doing? I mean, people are running all over the place with their on their motorcycles with a, you know, a camera on their helmet and a camera on their bike. And it seems like the recording and, and photography of it has just skyrocketed. Everybody wants to do it for all of their adventure. Gosh, do you know, I'm not sure. I think the most important thing is that recording your journey doesn't get in the way of the journey. I, I, from time to time, I found myself walking around with a mental camera strapped to the front of my face. It, the way that I'm seeing things is as if everything that I'm seeing, I want to take a photograph of. And when I realize that that's what I'm doing, I put my camera away for a week and I don't take any photographs at all because it's almost as if I'm developing tunnel vision and that's getting in the way of the journey. I'm spending my time looking for photographs to take instead of looking at the whole picture. And for me, that that's dangerous. Um, recording, I've got a friend who, when he travels, he's got um, a, a microphone in his crash helmet and as he's, dry, as he's riding, he's recording the things that he's seeing. And I can see the point of that. I, I think that would be great. I guess I'm always a little bit nervous about deleting stuff that I've recorded and then it's gone forever. But at the same time, you know, you can have a book and fall over in a river and drown it. Um, that's one of the reasons why I only write small journals and um, I, I'm, yeah, I'm very careful about how I send those home as I'm going. F photography is, is uh, a really wonderful tool to, to have on, on a trip. Uh, when I was doing this trip, digital photography wasn't around. And each film that I took, each 36-shot film that I took in a third world country, the cost of that film and the developing would be literally a week's food. And I wasn't a good photographer. So I might get a 36-shot film back and out of the 36 shots, three photographs might be acceptable. And the rest were pretty much trash. And digital photography is absolutely wonderful for, for getting around that. I think people can become much better photographers with digital photography if they've learned the basic rules of photography before they go. Because you can see what you've taken, you can learn very quickly about what's working and what's not. And you can see whether the shot that you thought was gonna, is absolutely brilliant actually is or not. And if it's not, then while you're there, you've got a chance of taking, taking that shot again. So you do have it. And I, I, when I was in Victoria Falls in Africa, I took a whole stack of films into a, a developer and I'd really researched very carefully which developer to take them in. There were four in the town. And I'd even gone to the extent of asking people when they were coming out of each developer to see their pictures so that I could see the quality of them. That's a very funny looks, but everybody understood. And I chose the developer and... Um, I bunged in my my films and what a stupid thing to do. I learned the lesson the hard way. They all came back completely overexposed. And that was, I don't know, three months worth of, of travel photography that I just lost in, in that instant hit. But hey, sometimes life doesn't work out how it's supposed to and you learn, don't you? I never did that again, that's for sure. Um, 
Photography is wonderful, though. That was overexposed from you taking them or the developer no, overexposing the them? The developer. The developer. No. So the negatives so you were broken them up. Yep. You should have broken them up and taken them to different. Hmm. Yep. Yep, absolutely. Yeah. But, I mean, now I use digital photography, and I love it. And I take far too many photographs. But I do go through fairly quickly and edit them down to the ones that I really like. A book and I spent some time traveling in Vietnam, and I took 5,000 photos over the month that we were there, and it was so easy to do. Some of them were bracketed, so, you know, two or three times the, the same thing because, you know, somebody blinks at the wrong moment or whatever else it might be, and you've lost that shot. So getting rid of the, the additionals, that's, that's quite easy to do. But I meet people that never um, cut down through their photos, and they end up with just so many memory cards or, or uploads to, to Dropbox or whatever. Um, and I sometimes wonder, would you ever, ever go through all of those? But hey, maybe they, they do, and I, I'm just, I just have to get it done soon. You mentioned putting your camera away for a week when you found yourself focusing too much on the photographs, and it, it brings back to mind something I read or heard you say one time uh, about um, never traveling to write a story. Your stories mm. come afterwards if it comes up that you want to write a story about that. Can you talk about that? I, put my, I call myself a traveler first, then a motorcyclist, and then an author. And that's how I think about my life. Um, obviously, there are one or two other bits on the side, but those are the, the three key things. And the, the journey is what's the most important to me. The, the freedom to, to see and to get involved and to ask questions and to meet people. And even the freedom just to stand on top of a hill and spend an hour just looking at the view because it's magnificent and you may never see something as spectacular as that again. Um, putting away a camera is, is um, an easy thing to do sometimes with when you're doing that sort of thing. But writing, if I've written my journal and I, always, and I want to write a story, then I've got the notes there in my journal. But I don't go out specifically intending to write. I don't want to do that because it's going to get in the way. It's going to have me waking up in the morning and thinking, um, I've got to see, get involved in this or I've got to try and find that sort of person to talk to. And I don't want to do that. I want the journey to unfold as best as it can. You know, Ewan and Charlie, they're a perfect example. I have a lot of time for what Ewan and Charlie did. Uh, you know, there, there are lots of naysayers around and um, paid lots of money and, um, you know, all of that sort of thing, and they travel with a backup crew and, and so on and so on. Although I think to produce a film uh, or films the way that they have, it's very difficult to do something as well as that, as professional level as that, if you don't have um, a crew behind you. And I'm sure Ewan's insurance company was going to insist that there are security guards of, or the equivalent on, on a trip mm -hmm. like that. But Ewan and Charlie, they had to wake up every morning and think, what do I want to do? But what does the film crew want me to do today? And I think that that really gets in the way. And one of the reasons I admire them is because they paid that price so that the rest of us can see some absolutely magical parts of the world and have motorcycling involved with it. Would I want to travel the way they do? Um, no, no thanks. Um, I'd rather uh, not have the money and I'd rather be able to wake up and have the freedom to make the day up each day. With your round-the-world trip that you did, the four books are based on, can you tell us what route you took and how long you spent doing it? Mm. Um, the first year was going down through Africa. That was the original plan, to ride a bike the length of Africa. I'd been riding a motorcycle for three months the day that I got to the edge of the Sahara. 
riding across Europe was so funny. Do you know, most of the time I felt like some sort of motorcycling accessory that was hanging on the back of the bike and it was telling me what to do. And, and sitting at the edge of the Sahara looking south, I, I, I was sitting there looking and thinking, Sam, you prat, what have you got yourself into this time? But uh, from then onwards, you know, the, the adventures just started rolling and, and the people and the things happening and the, too busy to, to worry about what could go wrong. And when things went wrong, then you just got on with sorting them out. Um, natural survival instinct but as I was going down towards the the bottom of Africa um, nearing the end of that first year in spite of uh, a few mishaps I was thinking what an amazing way this is to travel I'd, I'd hitchhiked I'd bus and trained and sailed and bicycled and various other ways but riding a motorcycle was just pure freedom being able to to stop and wherever I wanted to and to explore all of those interesting side turnings was just magic. And I was thinking, is there a good way, a good reason to go home? And well, there wasn't. If I went home, then I'd just get wrapped up in career and mortgage and all of those sorts of things again. And I might never get a chance to do something like this again. Africa had been much cheaper than I thought it was going to be. When I mean, I'd lived cheap, I'd wild camped as much as possible and eaten the local food and bargained in the markets and all of that sort of thing. And um, some of the only souvenirs I have from countries are the one beer that I had and I sort of soaked the beer label off. Um, so, you know, I traveled fairly tight budget, but when I got to the bottom, I still had a fair amount of money left and I thought, I'm not going home. This is too much fun. What, what an amazing way to lead life. So I shipped uh, my bike and I on a container ship across to Australia. And that was an experience and a half as well. I never dreamt that I'd be on something like one of these massive container ships. And um, yeah, um, so the next two years were riding through Australia and New Zealand and then up into Indonesia, Malaysia, Thailand, India, Nepal, Pakistan. And yes, I did get my visa for Iran just in time. Uh, Turkey and then Eastern Europe and then uh, a year back down through Africa and then across to South America and uh, 18 months in South America and Central America and then um, just under two years in Mexico States and Canada so just over eight years in total. Um, yeah, I got a little bit carried away. It was a good holiday. Yes, definitely a good holiday. As I mentioned, I've read all your books and I enjoyed them thoroughly. I, in fact, I could hardly put them down. I went from one to the next because it's a chain of stories there. It was a great read. And what I'd like to do is if you can just in brief, without giving away the plot, of course, just give us a, a rough rundown on each of the four books, just quickly what's inside. Okay, well, in each of my books, I, not, of course, talk about the motorcycling. I talk about the feelings that an overlander has. Uh, sometimes it's fear, sometimes it's pure joy, sometimes it's it's awe. Um, I write a little bit about the history and the geography and sometimes the politics of the different places because, you know, you ride into Ethiopia, for example, and when I was riding there, the war had only just finished by a couple of weeks. So politics was really important to what was actually happening in the country at the time. I rode in some villages, for example, and people ran away and hid because they'd never seen anything like uh, Mike, Sally and myself. I'd linked up with an English couple who were also riding down through Africa and uh, we rode together for a few months. But how weird was that to have people run away from us? So, And I write also about um, the stupid things that I do because Part of the objective of my books is not only to share the fun, but also I hope that people can read 
what happens in the books and think, yeah, oh, that's a good tip. That'd be useful. Uh, yeah, I can see how he got himself into that situation. But now I've read about it and can see what happened and what can go wrong. Well, I now won't do that myself. And so, yeah, I mean, Into Africa is very much about the journey down through the east side of Africa. But it's also about the amount of preparation that you need to do, um, the huge strokes of luck about keeping an open mind and treating people with respect until they prove otherwise, that they don't deserve it. I think it's very quick in Western society for us to distrust people until they prove to us that they can be trusted. And you miss out an awful lot of opportunities when you're traveling if you do that. Normally, if you're a reasonably common sense sort of person, then you can pick out the dodgy people fairly quickly. Uh, body language is, is quite interesting. But, you know, it's that old saying about judging books and covers. Sometimes you can meet the scruffiest, dirtiest people. But actually, inside that, that wrapping that they're in, they're simply amazing people with fantastic stories to tell. And so I try and get that across in, in my books. I want people to be able to realize that, it, you know, shit does happen. But it is how you deal with those situations. And Africa is just full of situations like that. Um, under Asian skies, by that time, I'd learned how not to fall off my bike all of the time. And we were at the stage where the two of us were thinking together about things. You know, I was no longer having to tell it what to do. And you know, we were way past the stage where it was telling me what to do. Um, and that gave me more time to observe what was going on around me. So there's a lot more descriptions about uh, the, the lands that I was traveling through, there are slightly more in-depth snippets of history about the different places, but also the very funny things that happen to you when you're on the road. And I had an accident in Australia. I was hit by a panel van and ended up upside down in the median in, in the middle of a dual carriageway. And the bike was on top of me. And the people who rescued it from me were three Australian Hells Angels. And, you know, you just never expect something like that to happen. These guys were so cool. Pure Australian. And the first one to get me, get to me. T typical Hells Angel type gear, you know, oil-stained boots and oil-stained trousers and a waistcoat were full of studs and badges and a motorcycle chain around his neck. And he had a, a German Second World War crash helmet on his head with two cow horns sticking out of the side of it. And he was riding this huge chopper. Goodness knows how he ever managed to get this thing to go around, around corners. But, um, his first comment to me was to lean down and look at me and say, Good day, mate. How's it going? You know, here's me underneath the bike with <laughs> petrol spewing out all over my legs and all of this sort of thing. But, so, you know, funny stuff happens. And that's one of the nice things about overlanding. So there's a lot more descriptions, but also things go wrong. And um, so it's a case of how do you deal with those? And getting your bike into India um, that's also a real challenge and that's been a challenge for donkey's years and it still is a challenge. So, you know, what's involved with doing that? This is the hints and tips and that, that sort of thing that, that are woven into the story. Uh, during this time, I meet Birgit and she joins me in, in, in India and Nepal. And um, that's really the start of the, the next book, how that happens. Birgit had been riding a motorcycle for about 600 miles when we started riding together in um, Kenya. And what a plucky lass this girl is. Um, I remember one day, she, after an instance on the road, she was in tears. It wasn't tears of, I can't do this, though. The tears were frustration that he, she'd even thought, I can't do this. And that just gave me such a good insight in, into her. 
but it was also a learning curve for me because I guess after um, oh, well oh, well over three years of of traveling on my own by that time to suddenly have to change from what do I want to do today to what what should we do today and always be taking somebody else into consideration with decisions and so on that was that was a, a big learning curve for me um, I think I had become quite selfish and and she soon put a hold to that but uh, you know traveling with somebody else people sometimes ask me what's the difference between traveling on your own and traveling with somebody else well, traveling on your own is the freedom to do things exactly as you want to. Some people get lonely when they're traveling on, on their own. I never do because there's always people around and there's always something interesting going on. But when you're traveling with somebody else, you've got the opportunity to share. And sometimes the sharing isn't something that happens with words. It's just, for example, sitting on the side of a hill looking at that view and knowing that you're both just reveling in it and the fact that you've got somebody next door to you sharing the moment too is is spectacular but also it's things like at the end of the day sitting down and talking about the things that have happened and sometimes Birgit has seen a whole set of different things to the things that I've seen so it's adding a, a complete new layer to the trip and I talk about all those sorts of things in Distant Suns. I also talk about how the relationship traveling with two people works because where you're two individuals you've both got your own interests obviously you've got a core interest and that's overlanding by motorcycle but Birgit for example she loves museums and I always tend to find them vaguely interesting but a little bit stuffy and but she's fascinated by them and we went into so many museums and I just saw and learned about things that had I not been traveling with her I would never have, have come across and never have learned about so those things go in the book too but also, you know, I mentioned about the security of, of traveling with somebody else. It's the things like when you're doing a border crossing and one of the other of you stays with the bikes while the other one goes in and deals with the paperwork. And the opportunities that happen as a result of one of you staying with the bike, um, dealing with the, the money sharks, you know, the money changes on the black market when you're standing out with the bikes, that's just a hoot because these guys are so funny. And if you have a laugh and a joke with them, well, that you soon get a decent rate out of them. But my goodness, you've got to watch that you get all of your fingers back when you're dealing with these guys. <laughs> um, but, you know, Birgit had lots of fun. For example, in South America, at the border crossings, the um, a lot of the officials re reacted completely differently to dealing with a girl than they did to dealing with a bloke. And I know that's a very sexist thing to say, but, um, yeah, Birgit had an easier time of it than I did. Um Sometimes I used to watch them and the guys would be on her backside as she was walking away from a customs border and she used to play them up sometimes, just really wind these guys up. Um, but uh, for a bloke, you know, well, I don't do the wiggle as well and I certainly don't look as good in leather trousers. <laughs> um, so, I mean, yeah, Distant Suns, it's, it's, it's a lot about the, the learning about the different countries that we're going through and the road conditions and the disasters that happen. And yeah, we did have a disaster. I... Um, I had an accident which meant that I lost all um, ability to use my left leg and was in such pain that, well, I'd never known pain like this. And being with Birgit, well, she was an absolute godsend. And the things that she had to deal with as a result of dealing with my injury, um, yeah, it just shows the courage that a person finds in themselves and the things that you end up doing that you could never have dreamt yourself doing. Now, the first night in, that I'm in hospital, um, having been medevaced out of the, the Carretera Austral in southern Chile in an ambulance, 
where the guys had drawn straws for who had to go and get this bloke. Um, Birgit ended up staying in a brothel overnight because that was the nearest place that she could find. And she says she'll never forget the strange looks that she got from people when she when they said, how long do you want the room for? And she said, oh, well, at least one night, probably more. Because <laughs> they were thinking, goodness, this girl's got stamina or an awful lot of boyfriends. <laughs> um, Central America was somewhere that we found absolutely fascinating. And a lot of people ride through quite quickly on their way to South America. But we loved it. And we spent three months there and it just wasn't enough time. Um, I'd love to go back and travel more in Central America. Tortius Totems, the, the fourth book, that takes uh, the reader through Mexico, United States and Canada. And I kind of like this book because they're three very, very different areas of North America. And Mexico I felt quite at home with, in. It's, you know, second world, developing quickly, but there's still an awful lot of rough and ready to it. And there's an awful lot of um, we'll make it work and entrepreneurialism on a very small scale. And there's also an air of danger about the place. Uh, but those were all things that we were used to. And yeah, we really enjoyed the atmosphere. Although I think probably the most danger we were in were from time to time with the, uh, the Mexican policeman. But that was danger that more from Birgit being a little bit volcanic when she gets messed around by people than, um, than the danger that they actually really <laughs> posed to us. Um, <laughs> But uh, United States, you know, I really wasn't sure if I wanted to travel there. I, I liked being in third world countries and the thought of going into the States with it being big and brash and everything there that you could possibly want. It just felt like it was going to be too easy. And I really wasn't sure if I wanted to be there as a result. I, I like the gnarly roads and the rough and ready um, places and the, the people that you meet in those but actually, you know, within a couple of weeks of being in the States, I thoroughly enjoyed myself. And I liked the opportunity to have such a wide range of, of road conditions. If we wanted gravel, we could find it easily. If we wanted sand, we could find it easily. If we wanted smooth, immaculate asphalt, we could find it. And so the freedom to get to the things that there were to see were either a continu continuation of the challenge or just really easy. So when we got somewhere, we could spend more time there. Riding up into Canada, well, again, it was almost like a coin had been turned over. Um, I I just loved riding in Canada and I itched to get back. It just continual beauty. And we really liked the Canadian people too. Um, we met some very, very friendly people. And once we'd worked out the Canadian sense of humor, we had a lot of laughs too. <laughs> As I said before, Sam, I really enjoyed the books, but Tortillas to Totems, I have to admit, when I got to the end, I was disappointed. I, I wanted more. I, I would like mm. another book. Do you know, Tortillas to Totems almost didn't get written because I wasn't sure who would be interested in um, reading about North America. And um, to my delight, it's been exactly the opposite. And I've met a lot of people as a result of the book who've said, do you know, it never occurred to me to go riding in, um, in North America. Um, I'm going to go now. It's, it's on my list of places to go, which has just been brilliant. But the, the hardest thing about riding in North America was coming to the end of the trip, uh, which, you know, you kind of identified for me and led me into very nicely. It was um, quite a daunting place to be knowing that the trip was going to come to an end and the, the thoughts about what I was going to do with the knowledge and what would happen in life next. Do you know, I'm not really afraid of the unknown, um, but I am afraid of something magnificent coming to an end. Um, yeah. And I, I don't know whether that came across to you when you, when you were reading um, Tortillas the Totems. 
Yeah, it certainly did. And I think what interested me about the book, even before I started reading it, I'm not so sure I would buy a book that someone just wrote about traveling across North America, because um, being from North America, it's somewhat less interesting reading about your own backyard. But what I was interested in was your perspective on it, and also the juxtaposition between uh, riding, uh, you know, in South America to North America. I, I found that quite interesting. And of course, the culmination, the whole journey. So to me, it was a, it was a very interesting read. Oh, great. I'm delighted. Well, that's the end of part one, but don't worry, part two is ready for you to download. Listen to the rest of Sam Manicom. He's got all kinds of information about his trip that he did. Listen to Sam. Tell us more about his trips. Tell us more about travel, about motorcycles, accessorizing. There's a lot more ahead. I'm Jim Martin. This is Adventure Rider Radio. Thanks for listening. We hope you enjoyed listening to it as much as we enjoyed making it. Don't get out and ride yet. Normally I would say get out and ride, but I want you to listen to the second part. Or maybe you want to ride at first and then come back and listen to the second part. That's cool too. No worries. Ride safe. Oh wait, don't forget. There's going to be links in the show notes. Go check them out. Check out Horizons Unlimited. And don't forget to sign yourself up for one of those events, the Horizon Unlimited events that are coming up now. Uh, Even if they've passed by the time you listen to this, there's more coming up all the time. Don't miss it. Get out there and do one. And check out Sam's books because we're going to have Sam's links on here as well where you can go and order the books. You can order them directly from Sam, which is the best bet. Or you can order them through Amazon. And there'll be more on part two. Listen to part two. This is Dr. Gregory W. Frazier, and you're listening to Adventure Rider Radio. <laughs>